In the past weeks on Loud and Queer, we've been covering key issues impacting the queer community. Researchers, advocates and leaders. I'm Lachlan Patrick, here to bring you what they've been telling us. What we know is this year has been different. Ida Hoppet in May saw some community backlash, as Nick Salos welch reports. Queer advocacy organisation Minus18 were on the ground in Melbourne Central Shopping Centre to raise awareness for the day. I'd hope it's International Day against homophobia, biphobia, interphobia and transphobia, which is why I've got the handy acronym I'd hope it, but really it's a day to stand against LGBTQA plus discrimination. It was a lower key installation than previous years, which saw the team offering up colourful trinkets to passers-by. Minus 18's here at Melbourne Central today to hand out rainbow ally badges, these rainbow ribbons, uh, we've got magnets as well, just to be visible um, and show allyship and encourage others to do the same. But while rainbow pins were the order of the day in the CBD, Parliament House tackled a prickly issue just blocks away. Recent weeks have seen drag queen storytime events planned for council libraries face protester backlash. Monash City Council plans for Oakley Library to hold a reading marking Ida Hobbit set the stage for a fiery public meeting last month. The drag storytime event is scheduled to be held on 19 May to celebrate the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia and Transphobia by modelling inclusiveness, kindness and acceptance while promoting a love of reading. Children are never too young to receive such messages in a variety of ways. The council scrapped the story time, citing threats to library staff as other councils also axe their events or shift the readings online. Several councils say Victoria Police have advised them it can't ensure the events run safely in light of the threats to staff safety. But this week, State Equality Minister Harriet Shing stepped in, hosting several cancelled performers at Parliament House. Shing is openly queer and says she self-funded the reading, inviting parliamentary staffers' children and the Premier to the closed event. But opposition leader John Pesciuto, who just ousted one of his own MPs for comments about transgender women, said he would have liked an invite. I love everybody. This is everybody's house. Everybody should feel welcome in the Victorian Parliament. It was that message of tolerance shared by the performers at Wednesday's Parliament House reading. My shadow is pink. My shadow loves ponies and books and pink toys. Princesses. <laughs> Time will tell if acceptance brings the next Ida Hobbit out of the shadows after this year saw more twists and turns than a storybook. Nick Salas Welsh, Sin News, Melbourne. Now, opening the history books, researcher Neve White told Tammy Brook queer history's never been more accessible in online spaces. It's an interesting time. It's something um, so. The way my research works is I'm interviewing predominantly young queer women or non-binary people who have like a relationship to womanhood and and they're bringing this up in conversation. Um, You know, I'm asking about queer history, but things that are coming up at the moment are a lot of what's going on in the US over transphobia, but also how it's coming here in the Australian context. I was at the State Library a few weeks ago for the Trans Day of Visibility rally, and a few weeks before that, there was a transphobic incident with some Nazi protesters here, and that's like really scary to see. So it's quite obvious that we're living through like a historical moment in and of itself. I'm speaking specifically to young people, and all of them are saying to me like, I don't have queer elders. I don't know what 
queer elders' lives looked like. But through the internet, I can find out. Exactly. And that's when you find out that, no, they did exist. It's just that they had to be quiet about it because that's kind of what you had to do. And so there's this whole new kind of like door open to finding out about the people who came before us, paved the way for us, or who had these lives that like led to rights and um, culture today that we have. And that's pretty cool. But at the same time, there's there's a definite sense of like loss and sadness there in mm. terms of, oh, wouldn't it be beautiful if we, we were all kind of better connected across those generations? Gaps in what's available remain, as researcher Daniel Scrimshaw told Mia Ranaletta. There hasn't really been any any other books published that are exclusively about like the queer woman's experience in Australian history. So... I mean, you're either going to sit around waiting for someone to write it for you or you have to do the research and the work yourself. Even mm. here, like it's in, within the show specifically, there are often, even within myself, times where you kind of question like, oh, I'm not kind of queer enough to be doing this. Mm. And it's like, if you're not doing it, nobody else kind of will. Mm. What would you, I guess, like to change about the process of academia and within queer histories in making it more accessible. There's been like lots of discussions about how like Australians, like the education curriculum should be changed or not changed. And it's been a few years since I went to high school. So I'm not, I'm not sure. I do remember like my, my school was fairly progressive in the sense that it was a, it was a public school and there were a lot of queer people out in my year level. We then they recognised, like, Wear It Purple Day and Ida Hobbit Day and everything. So that was great. Um, but where, where, like, the education side of it, you didn't really learn much about queer history. I feel like the the most, like, kind of sense of, like, the most discussion around queer people was probably, like, in literature classes where you studied, like, Oscar Wilde or something. High schools don't even need to go that in-depth about queer history, but I think, like, there needs to be some sort of, like, recognition or acknowledgement that not all these people, that there is a queer history in Australia and um, it's not so much a recent thing. In Darwin, a backlash to the queer community. Sammy Perryman heard from broadcaster Jacob Gamble about a stoush over a mural in May. The mural's quite new. It was only uh, int- uh, painted in, I think, March this year, but basically it got uh, defaced. So someone just spray-painted all over the top, Um which was horrible, of course. But I think what was the more compelling part of the story is uh, the queer community organised, came together and basically restored the mural to its former glory. They all had a little snap action and they brought snacks and stuff and paint um, and they just repainted it, which is pretty... It's a pretty cool, like, story of community resilience. But, you know, I I filed that on, um, I think, th- Friday afternoon, being like, oh, that's so beautiful. And then the next day, there was another um, defacing, more vandalism. So basically someone put a few slurs uh, on the, the rainbow. Um, but then once again, they came together, the queers, um, and repainted it. So, yeah, it's, it's a pretty pretty frightening um, to think there's very overt displays of homophobia and transphobia, but I think there was some very inspiring elements to the story too. Speaking more broadly, um, how do you feel about kind of recent local headlines and reporting on queer events? Yeah, this is a great question because there's been so many things happening over the last couple of months. I mean, we had that uh, try not to swear fiasco <laughs> at Parliament House and then we've also had all of this crazy stuff happening with uh, the drag 
story times um, being protested. So I I think the reporting on this event, uh, for me, I can definitely see both sides of the coin as, you know, someone who's involved in the journalism industry, but also someone who's a community member. But that's not stopped the party. Performer Greg Gould spoke to Liz Folds before he headlined Darwin Pride in June. It's always nice to have something represent who who you are, and it was representing my community and and a community that's bigger than myself. So the songs become bigger than just me, and that's really special. Why do you think it was selected? I think because of the message behind it. Okay. I think because it's you know we've got to remember that Pride and you know Mardi Gras started as a march. It started as a protest where people were getting arrested. People were literally fighting. It was illegal to be gay. When yes. Mardi Gras started in 1978, things have changed so much. So I think um, it represents what, why we continue to have Pride. During uh, Sydney World Pride was the first time I got really attacked online. And That's I think cool. it's because I was tagging Sydney World Pride in all my posts saying, can't wait to perform. And I, and I believe that there was trolls that were looking at literally. And I got smashed with thousands of messages that I've never had before. And I know a few other people performers of friends of mine that have had the same thing happen. And when people say to me, oh, why do you still need pride? You know, you've got marriage equality. You don't need pride. If you need to have any sort of example, I'm getting attacked online just for wearing a fabulous jacket and going to an event. Back home, the Melbourne Writers Festival continued to showcase a range of stories. Liz spoke to author Ronnie Scott. Publishers today are really interested in where writers come from, right? Like okay. they're interested, like, where are you writing from? Um, are you a queer writer? You know, what is your perspective and how does that inform the kind of story that you tell? And all kinds of publishers, I think, are really open open to that and really interested in that, which wasn't the case, you know, or 30 years ago. Um, or it would be seen as an impediment to finding an audience, whereas today it's seen as a way of finding an audience. Um, on the other hand, like, publishing is is difficult full stop. And whether it's, like, a moment where publishing is expanding a little bit or whether it's a moment where publishing is contracting a little bit... Um, yeah, it's a it's a difficult industry and so based in like chance and circumstance. I can imagine. I feel like a lot of the art industry is really, really hard to break into. Yeah, yes. People's fortunes change and, you know, what they like, it's always kind of hard to match up what it is that you want to do as a writer or an artist with what people will read um, or what people will publish. And that seems like a question that changes probably throughout an artist's whole career as well, right? Like, I think that for an artist starting out, uh, it's um, yeah, it, it's it's immensely challenging, and like I say, based in chance. Um, what you know, whether you get published and how you get published, and then the question of what's a sustainable career is different again. May also saw Melbourne Design Week, including an exhibit highlighting city safety for women and queer people. Liz spoke to researcher Jean Borden about consenting cities. Melbourne and Venice—they're beautiful cities that have you know. A- a real attraction to tourists, a real attraction to the people who live there. But nonetheless, there is an underbelly to all of our cities in which we live that makes it challenging for women, girls and gender diverse people to actually traverse the city, to feel safe in the places that they live in. So what are your hopes for consenting cities? Like all of our projects, what I hope consenting cities does is to reach a broader audience what we're interested in doing is alerting really broad communities to the stuff that happens in between those buildings, inside those buildings, the interstitial spaces that are you know, created by those structures being together. You know, the, the city is more than a construction of 
new towers and spaces for people to live and work. They're also spaces that need to be accessible and safe. May ended with the fourth LGBTQ Domestic Violence Day, founded by Queensland Police Officer Ben Bjarnason. He told me what drives his advocacy. So I had my own experiences of domestic violence um, back in around 2012, 13. And, uh, you know, as a police officer, I was dealing with domestic violence cases every day, but even though I was um, in that sort of position, I wasn't recognising it in my own relationship because um, it was a case of, you know, I thought it was something that it was um, heterosexual men perpetrating violence against heterosexual um, women, and I didn't think it was something that could really affect me. Is there a lot of reporting on how common this is for the LGBTQ community, or is that something that might still be a bit lacking? Look, it's definitely lacking, but at the same time, you know, the most recent studies, um, one out of La Trobe University in Victoria, um, the Private Life 3 survey, and the other one was uh, sorting it out report out of New South Wales, the University of Western Sydney. Both of those have shown sort of around um, 62% of LGBTQ plus people have experienced uh, domestic violence in their lifetime. So um, pretty concerning figures. Historically, there has been perhaps a distrust of police from some people in the LGBT community? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, relationships between police and queer communities have historically been pretty horrendous um, going back. So there's still a lot to be done, um, but there's definitely been huge strides made, um, you know, since I've been around the last sort of uh, 15 years. Uh, when I first started, I was in the closet. Nobody knew that I was gay. Uh, I didn't know of any other gay police in the service. And, you know, over the years, um, it's got a lot better. The liaison programs come a long way. There's internal support networks for staff and things now. Um, there's been changes to policy, changes to forms, and some really sort of meaningful relationships between police and support services come about. But, um, you know, there's always going to be more to be can be done. June was Pride Month, but also a milestone for author and trauma educator Brad Guy. He told me about marking 10 years since his life-changing accident. It was the most catastrophic thing that could happen to me. I was on the precipice of the rest of my life as a 22-year-old, and everything changed that day. So to now call myself a survivor, I think, is less about the fact that I miraculously survived and more about the work I've put in day to day over the past 10 years to live the life that I have now, I didn't want to victimize myself anymore or else I would have just forever been a victim. I think what you call yourself is what you become and Survivor for me makes me feel empowered and galvanizes me for the rest of my recovery, which really, even though it's been 10 years, is ongoing forever. I had to make myself vulnerable. I had to revisit so much to actually make the book complete but I was also very naive to how much healing I still had left to do. And ironically enough, I do feel like publishing the book and sharing my story, approaching the 10-year anniversary, has officially closed a chapter on that part of my life. And July sees the 40th anniversary of Thorn Harbour Health, founded as a Victorian AIDS Council in the midst of crisis. Educator Jacinta Hennicom told me about the milestone. There's a number of different events and celebrations on and a lot of recognition of the massive amount of activism that has gone into the organisation since we've existed in the last 40 years, but also leading up to that moment of 
the Victorian AIDS Action Committee, as it was first known, being born in 1983. We have a really rich history. A lot of the people that were involved in the creation of the organisation are still around and are still active leaders in our communities. People like Alison Thorne, who quite famously is the socialist feminist who stood up at a, an AIDS meeting back in 83 and said, what are we doing about this? We need to do something when our communities were facing quite terrifying examples of, of death and disease. We have made a lot of progress on HIV, but we've also made a lot of progress on what's now called MPOX. Mm. That was a huge thing last year. And then just... Yeah. You don't hear about it anymore. What what has happened with MPOX? It's a virus that did have a, quite a large outbreak this time last year, so around Pride events in the US and Europe. There was a lot of fear because it's MPOX. There was this pox, this rash that was showing up that was really uh, quite horrific, quite painful, but also there was the, the fear of stigma of this being labelled as the next gay disease, just mm. like HIV or AIDS was back in the day. And I think that the thing that it comes down to is vaccination. At the time, there was a vaccine which was similar to or, or the same as the smallpox vaccine. And so there was only a very small amount of that vaccine available worldwide. They kind of changed the method of how it was delivered to people. So it was what they call subcutaneous injection, so where they inject it under the dermal layer of the skin rather than a standard in-the-arm flu shot procedure. People got vaccinated. We did start to see an outbreak, particularly here in Melbourne and New South Wales, kind of levelled off and then dropped off almost completely. But of course, we're still encouraging people to get vaccinated if they are at risk and they haven't yet had their vaccination or if you haven't yet had your second dose. Getting that extra protection from the second dose is really important and, like I said, basically covers you for the rest of your life. Still ahead this year, the Melbourne Queer Film Festival. It named its new program director, Cerise Howard, who spoke to Nick about what's to come. At this point in time, just I've had four days in the role as we speak now, <laughs> um, I'm still just learning the internal landscape of the festival. Yep. I already have some ideas about what I want this year's festival to be like and feel like. We've always been here, and that's a, a message that to me seems uh, incredibly important to stress mm. right now when uh, when there are um, forces out there actively trying to propagate myths around, let's say, ideas like gender uh, diversity being some sort of new phenomenon. Or, yes. You know, it's just rubbish. So, um, yeah, so... Yeah. Um, that, that sort of thing really drives me. And we're starting to see what the program will look like with Sophie Seville's film Pineapple winning the festival's Pitch Please competition. She told Nick about the winning pitch. Being a pitch-off, you've got to be pretty good at pitching. Pitching, you know, it's all about how do you how do you sell your, your story um, in five minutes um, to sound fun and engaging in something that has merit to be um, funded. If you were to do a brief pitch now, how would you... How would you pitch it to, to me? <laughs> Putting me on the spot. Um, so <laughs> so um, Pineapple is actually a sequel to a previous short I made called Peach. Um, Pineapple is set five years on from the events of Peach where we revisit our um, protagonist, Sarah, who's slightly older, more confident and wiser, and she moves into an apartment block to find that um, 
this girl that got away, Peach, lives next door, lives in the apartment block. Um, And she sees this as her second chance to get this girl that got away. So she impulsively asks over asks her over for dinner. Peach quickly clashes with all of her friends and then right sort of unravels um, into dismay. I'm Lachlan Patrick, and that's just some of what we've covered on Loud and Queer. Hear the full conversations anytime online with your preferred podcast platform. Just search Loud and Queer Talks. <laughs> <laughs>